Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Justify my love for the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank Madonna for writing that song about her favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to join our Facebook group. We're talking about interesting stuff like why Paul Orndorff was never a world's heavyweight champion. Cool conversation, cool pictures, and free to join. So jump on. If you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. If you're not into the whole Twitter thing, you can follow me on Truth Social at... Yeah, right. Okay. And with that, I want to bring on our guest. He's on. The, he listens to the show every week. I do know that because he produces it. Lou Kipple, and welcome back to Stick to Wrestling in the guest chair. Hey, uh, as always, good to be here and good to be on mic this week. Yeah, exactly. And another reason to join the Facebook group, we took questions. This is what this, this episode is going to be all about. We took questions from our Facebook followers um, on the year 1982. In about a month, we'll do this again with the year 1983. You are the guest, Lou, so please throw out the first question. All righty. Well, let's see here. I'll start with this one from Ron Wayne. He asks, do you think Jimmy Snuka jumping off the top of the cage was a bad omen for cage matches in the future? Since then, it seems like someone needs to jump from the top where the match is considered a failure. I like that question. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I would say, I don't think it's necessarily what Snuka did in 82 kind of precipitated that expectation necessarily, because you get past 82, 83, and then you have, I mean... The the cage matches you see through the rest of the 80s are, you know, for the most part, just your, what you would, would expect of a cage match. Guys punching, kicking, doing the cheese grater thing on the cage. You know, if you think of like the noteworthy cage matches after that snooka backling cage match, you'd have, of course, Flare Race and Starcade 83 and... um you know, no real high flying there until the finish, which was just a flare doing a cross body off the top. You get through other cage matches later in the decade. I'm thinking Dusty versus Flair, uh, the Bash 86 in Greensboro. Obviously, no high flying there. I would go to the end of the 80s, 88, 89, when Hulk Hogan and Big Boss Man had their cage match and i want to say it was a what was a superplex off the top and i By think boss man rogers the guy his size that was amazing yeah yeah so i mean that was definitely one of those uh holy shit moments but then after that i mean i don't think necessarily it was a thing about snooka flying in the cage but then you have you know kind of based off the uh, sort of the predominant style at the time. 
and I think as, uh, you know, the wrestling became more, I hate when people use the term acrobatic in terms of wrestling style, but it's pretty accurate though. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if, even if Snuka had not made that leap, eventually you'd find probably at the time it became popular, you'd have other people doing aerial maneuvers off the cage. I mean, I remember watching ECW and they had the, what was the name of the, the Eliminators doing like crazy stuff off the top of the cage. I was like, you know, remember when Snooker just doing a simple dive was the end of the world, but that was a good 13 years later. And Lou, I agree with your uh, analysis of it. If you look at the the real high profile cage matches for the rest of the decade, you've got uh, Flair and Kerry Christmas Night 1982. You've got the uh, I Quit cage match with Tully and uh, and Magnum TA. The uh, the silly one with the. Uh, uh, Randy Savage and Zeus against Brutus Beefcake and Hulk Hogan. <laughs> God, yeah. I mean, by <laughs> the pay-per-view, Hogan and Bundy. I mean, all of those did not have that spot, and it really, I, I, it really didn't change anything except for in the WWF when Jimmy Snuka wrestled in a cage match against Morocco in '83. I mean, that would have been a disappointment had he not jumped from the top of the cage, and he did not disappoint. Right, I totally agree about that. That was time for, you know, Snuka was a full-fledged babyface and. People essentially waited a year for him to hit that move. So that was the time. Yeah, when the Morocco Snooker feud first took off and we saw that, you know, these guys were in a serious program. I mean, I remember my friends and I discussing like how much we wanted to say, let me let me backtrack a little bit. When Morocco first came back to the WWF fall or late fall of 1982, Snooker had already turned. You know, I was thinking Morocco might win the title. And if he did, Morocco versus Snooker for the title, I mean, that's a dream match to me. Well, it didn't have the world title. It had the intercontinental title, and it was still kind of a dream match. And we got to see it a few, you know, we got to see it twice in Boston, in- including Snooker squashing Morocco from the top of the cage after he knocked him out so i mean yeah yeah you know we're in snooker's matches it definitely changed things but I, I don't think it really changed the dynamics of the cage match in general even in in just the wwf lou in your opinion brandon jarvis wants to know what promotion had the best year mm. well one could say maybe the dallas territory world class but i would say probably it had the best end of the year, which set up a, you know, record setting off the charts here in 1983. 1982 World Wrestling Federation, I don't know, it just seemed, though I haven't seen many matches from that year, it seemed altogether start to finish, with the exception of Snooka's big babyface turn, seemed a little lackluster. Uh, the AWA was, you know, Hulk Hogan, Nick Bockwinkle, and a bunch of guys in their 50s. So, I, you know, Hulk Hogan aside, his star was ascendant, but I don't think it was a, a, the best year of the, uh, of the wrestling promotions. I would save that uh, for Mid-South Wrestling. I think they really had 
all gears moving, and it was balls to the wall. JYD was still on top. Ted DiBiase, of course, and the Rat Pack uh, really made an impact. And you had other guys there as well, of course, Wrestling 2, Mr. Olympia, just top to bottom. It was just very solid. My favorite wrestling promotion in 1982 was Mid-South Wrestling. Like you said, they had a phenomenal year. I couldn't believe Ted DiBiase was a heel. He was one of those guys I thought would never be a heel. And he turned out to be the best heel I have ever seen ever in Mid-South Wrestling. Not the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. I like that one as well. But Ted DiBiase, 1982-83, Mid-South was the best heel I've ever seen. As far as, you know, the World Wrestling Federation, 82 might have been my favorite year uh, from them. You know, not just uh, subject, not just objectively, because it was the first year I started. Uh, I went to all of the Boston Garden shows. I started in 81, but by 82, I was going to all of them. And they had a, a great year because they they brought in a bunch of new faces. They brought in Bob Orton Jr., who was fantastic. Adrian Adonis, who was fantastic. Jesse Ventura was terrible in the ring, but he was great on the stick, and he drew heat. Uh, we had, again, Snooka turned, and they they did great at the box office. No questions. You know, every time they threw a show out there at a major arena, it was successful, if not a sellout. World Class came out of 1982, as far as like most improved, like they were just another mid major at the beginning of 82, but by the end of 82, that promotion had exploded and they were in for a heck of a 1983. And we're going to talk about what happened at Christmas night and at a future show. And we're going to talk about, you know, uh, quarterly what we did last week with world class, but yeah, it was a, it was a great, I think it was the last great year for the territories because 83, a couple of the territories took, a big step back both no, mid-south georgia and florida i thought had off years you know both at the gate and creatively i think memphis took a step back as well so you know so many to pick from my favorite was mid-south georgia was another great one every 605 on saturday i looked forward to seeing that uh that was another promotion it took a big downturn in 83 so i would say you know my favorite mid-south but i mean World Wrestling Federation was out there printing money. Yeah, and if you want to talk about, though may not technically be a territory as it was a one-city town, the one linchpin of the territory system in 1983 that pretty much had the walls crashing down around it would be St. Louis. Oh, yeah. With the new ownership, Larry Matisic breaking off and doing greater St. Louis wrestling, and then at the end, in December, the WWF makes a tremendous move to get the wrestling at the chase time spot. Yeah, I bought Larry Matisic's book a few years back. The first thing I did, I didn't start at the beginning. I started in 1983 because I wanted the scoop on what happened in St. Louis because you know, I, I really didn't know what – the magazine certainly didn't cover it, and I wasn't getting the Observer back then. So it was, it was the first thing I turned to, and it was a, a pretty interesting story about the split. Larry Matisic's book, I'm pretty sure, is still available on Amazon at a reasonable price. It's a good read. I recommend it to everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. As part memoir and part behind the scenes of how St. Louis operated 
in the 60s, 70s, and 80s is called Wrestling at the Chase, and I recommend it highly as well. Next question here from Bill Amadeo. Was the Lawler-Kaufman feud the most powerful of the year? Bill Rockney Amadeo. Yeah. <laughs> ah, yes. There we go. Or Dirk Commissar, as we, as we call him in certain countries. In certain countries. Yes. Boy, the adverb or adjective, pardon my lack of English knowledge, working here is powerful. Powerful in terms of drawing money and drawing houses. I think it did that at the beginning, if only for the sort of mind-blowing concept of a celebrity civilian coming in and doing a shtick and running right up against the hero of the territory. That was a new one. You know, Lou, let me let me throw this in. Andy Kaufman, I'm not going to say he was a household name, but he was like a step behind that. Like, I mean, pretty much everyone knew who Andy Kaufman was. Right. And by that time, around uh, earlier part, first, second quarter of 1982, Taxi was headed for cancellation in ABC. It had one last season on NBC. And then, you know, Kaufman shtick from Fridays and from Saturday Night Live. I think that around that time, 81 or 82, they did a sort of Vox Populi gimmick where they they put it in the viewers' hands about uh, should Andy Kaufman be uh, banned for life from SNL. I watched that live as it aired. Yeah, and uh, it didn't go Andy's way. Or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he still had his still had his very memorable appearances, Lawler aside, from being a guest on Late Night with David Letterman. But even without the the fatal health problems that came a little later, Andy Kaufman was, I guess, not at his zenith in terms of popularity. No. I mean, I, I don't think it was very powerful. I think, you know, it was just, a, I mean, Steve Crawford mentioned on our Facebook group, uh, which you should join, that it, it was kind of just a, it wasn't really like a, a totally serious angle. It was kind of a sideshow. Um, and people will say, you know, yeah, it drew well at first. And then it, ta- you know, as the longer it went, the more the audiences tailed off. You know, Mid-South Coliseum did not sell out every Monday night. Far from it. I mean, you watch clips, even from the late 70s, early 80s, sometimes there's a lot of empty seats there. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory manner. I mean, they, you know, it's a big building that had a wrestling show every seven nights. You know, not everyone's going to go to all 52 of them. But um, yeah, I, th- I think it, it was a a, a nice vehicle for Andy Kaufman, who wanted to do it. It was a nice vehicle for Jerry Lawler to get some national publicity and, you know, his more uh, pictures of him in the magazines. But other than that, it was just kind of this, like you said, this weird, like like Steve said, just kind of a, a sideshow angle. Yeah, that it was. It was definitely, <laughs> definitely, uh, you- I guess what you could charitably call a special attraction. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, as with anything, the frequency with which Andy Kaufman returned to Memphis, the more totally diluted the product became. 
And you could tell towards the end, like, Andy could not get through a sentence without having a coughing fit. And he was gone. You know, this is like mid-83, and he was gone less than a year later. So, I mean, he he kept doing it as long as he could do it. And it seemed like the promotion, you know, had him as, as much as he wanted to do it. But, and, you know, it, it's Memphis. I mean, you know, is Andy really going to draw worse than, you know, Jerry Lawler versus Ron Bass or Jerry Lawler versus Iron Sheik or Jerry Lawler versus Bill Dundee for the millionth time? Yeah, very true. And that's always good to remember that uh, the Memphis Territory sort of worked in its own uh, very special and very, very off-the-wall reality. You know, I when I first started getting Memphis Wrestling in 1987, I, at first I thought it was the greatest thing ever, and then I found it to be, and I'm not, like I said, not knocking it, I loved it, a little bit repetitive. Like, my Memphis fix would be taken care of in a three-month span, and every year I would go back and, like, do that again. Like, oh, I'm going to start getting Memphis tapes again and really look forward to it. And then, you know, the, the more you get, the, the less I enjoyed it. Not sticking to wrestling, we were talking about Andy Kaufman being on Saturday Night Live and, and getting they had a live vote where you could call in and vote do you want him on the show again or never on the show again and it, I mean it totally backfired and he thought for sure you know he would get the votes and he didn't he got voted off and at one point he's on the show and he looks like hell warmed over his hair's a mess he hasn't shaved and he's like you know I, my life has gone so wrong. My my my, my wife left me, and, and she took the kids. <laughs> and I'm with a few people watching this, and I'm the only one laughing, and I'm laughing hysterically. And this girl's like, why are you laughing? This is horrible. And I'm like, he doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have kids. It's all, it's all Andy being Andy. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was the, you know... Using one of the neologisms here, if you know, you know. And if you couldn't, if you couldn't, you know, see it for the absurdism uh, that it was, you probably would never get it. No. <laughs> I, I mean, I've mentioned this on the show. I, I saw I'm from Hollywood the first time at the Boston Museum <laughs> of Fine Arts. I mean, just talk about what a bizarre combination. <laughs> and. You know, it was it was hilarious then, and it, it's still hilarious. It just got played to death on Comedy Central. That it did. That's where I first caught it, and the 117 viewings I saw afterwards. A, a great sort of time capsule of that that particular time in Memphis, and also personal favorite, the acapella group, the Bobs, the Bobs. Uh, providing the soundtrack. <laughs> Uh, now I've got to watch that again. I, I, I bet I haven't watched that in 15, 20 years. More like 15. But anyway, Steve Crawford, we can't stop talking about him. Who was the best manager of 1982? Lou, as the guest, please go first. Right. So thinking about it. So you have, of course, you got the three wise men in the World Wrestling Federation, each doing their thing. I want to say, was it Blassie who was the the manager of uh, Adonis and Ventura? He was. At that time? Yeah. And then, of course, you have Albano with the uh, tag champs, who I think were Fuji and Saido. And then the the Wiz taking back up with uh, superstar Kung Fu Billy Graham. In the AWA, you had, of course, the always 
Sterling, Bobby the Brain Heenan. In Jim Crockett promotions, you had, I think the big one at that point would have been Sir Oliver Humperdinck with the House of Humperdinck. That was it. Yeah. That never seemed to get over that big, though. Mid-Atlantic never seemed like a real manager's territory. Uh, yeah, and it certainly didn't seem so at the time. I mean, they uh, the way it was booked, boy, they certainly took up a lot of the oxygen in the Mid-Atlantic TV shows, if you saw them at the time. Or if you if you heard them recapped with Mike Sempervivi and Roman Gomez's Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast, shameless plug number one. And we love those guys. You betcha. So, you know, Humperdinck was there, but he wasn't, I think, getting over as well as he would have in Florida. And then in Memphis, you have Jimmy Hart, who honestly just started being a manager in 1980 after Lawler broke his leg. And then 1981, he was kind of the blasting cap on the dynamite that was 1981 uh, in Memphis. And I want to say that Probably that spilling over into 1982, I would say that probably made him kind of the kind of the the sleeper, low key manager of the year throughout all of pro wrestling. I mean, to me, there's a clear top four in my opinion. Captain Lou Albano was fantastic in 1982. Just a a such a, a devious yet funny person um i mean he just seemed completely out of control at all times uh or, or you know what maybe even putting it, it this way the fact that he wasn't completely out of control at all times he would occasionally do an interview where he was as straight and as logical as could be and then as the interview went on he got crazier and crazier uh i'm, I'm very glad captain Lou albano got into the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. And, you know, he was the top heel in the top promotion for like 10 years. You know, I, to me, he was obvious. I'm glad he finally got in. The other guy who needs to be talked about, as always, is Bobby Heenan. Uh, just consistent work from him in the AWA. You knew what you were getting, and you knew it was going to be good every time. Gary Hart, I have found have found this like newfound love for Gary Hart in the early eighties. Um, as we discussed last week, he was fantastic and world class. The the interview he did where Fritz von Erich exposed him as you know. He, having a check from Ric Flair for $12,500. I mean, the audio was fantastic, but the video, Hart's facials were, were incredible. And then you have him in Georgia going back earlier in the year with the great Kabuki. You know, I was someone who was like, yeah, Gary Hart was okay in the 70s, but then in the 80s, he was really overrated. And I, I've changed my opinion on that. I don't think he was good in the NWA in like 88, 89. I think he put on a, a spectacularly bad performance uh, when Ric Flair wrestled Terry Funk in the I Quit match. Like Gary Hart was just in the way. <laughs> Um, right. but in 82, he was, he was phenomenal. But my number one is, you know, Jimmy Hart was the backbone. Jimmy Hart and, and Jerry Lawler were the combined backbones of the Memphis territory. If you take Jimmy Hart out of Memphis, I think you're taking a lot of Memphis's success away. As we saw when, when Jimmy Hart actually did leave in 1985 for the WWF, not that I think, you know, Memphis was salvageable anyway, but I mean, you know, j losing Jimmy Hart was a big deal. Uh, Jimmy Hart was kind of the glue that held it all together in Memphis. So I'm going to go with him as the best manager in 1982. 
Yeah, and shame on me for being the guy who edited together all those promos from Gary Hart just only a few days ago from our recording date, because it told a story, and Gary Hart was able to tell a story and tell it really well. Yes. If I'm not mistaken, was he the booker for most of 1982 in Dallas? I believe he was. Up until, yeah, uh, the very end with the the cage match with Flair and Kerry and the Freebirds turn, and then Ken Mantell took over. But certainly his prowess as a booker there was also helped by his prowess as a man who represented his charges, be it the Great Kabuki mainly, or the Magic Dragon, or anybody else who he consorted with to get the bounty. I mean, he really was great. At first, he's like, no, I'm just doing this as a favor for Ricky Flair, a class man. And then and then finally, Fritz shows up with a check that King Kong Bundy provided for him and, and Gary Hart's eyes. He didn't oversell it. He, he And he didn't undersell it. He sold it perfectly. His eyes bugged out, you know. Where did you get that? It was it was really good. Great performance by Gary Hart. All right, Lou, you get to pick a question now. Yeah. And uh, one last postscript on that, just uh, hearing those interviews, Bill Mercer, who gets a horrible rap, and most of the time deservedly so, <laughs> uh, for for his commentary, he did a really good job in an adversarial role. Yes. To help frame uh, the whole whodunit, the whole mystery of the bounty. So I will give him props for that. I, I want to join you in giving him props. He played the straight man incredibly well with you know with Gary Hart. Like, of course, he's got to ask investigative questions. Of course, Gary Hart doesn't like it, but he played. Bill Mercer did a great job there. He did. Absolutely. Next question here from Michael Faulkner. What do you think happens if Vern actually does pull the trigger in 1982 and makes Hulk the champ of the AWA? What's your thoughts on that, Lou? Right. I was thinking about it, and I thought, hmm. I was thinking about, you know, sort of possible behind-the-scenes machinations. And had Inoki not had a ironclad relationship with the WWF at that time, could we have seen a sort of transactional championship reign in the vein of Otto Vance and later Jumbo Saruta, and then Stan Hansen subsequently, you know, to help make Hulk a king in Japan and the U.S.? It's an interesting thought. Yeah, I, and I mean, that's an actual, that's a big, big hypothetical. So uh, it was just, you know, a pipe dream there. So if he does, if if Fern independently decides to make Hulk the champ, well, that would make things interesting. So putting Hulk on top and then having him defend the title against these, not only the technical heels, like, say, a Billy Robinson or a Nick Bockwinkle, but then also your big monster heels, be it Ken Patera, Jerry Blackwell, and, of course, other guys, you know, if Sayudo comes in from Japan, which he does in 83. But I think it would have been an interesting run. The question is, what's the length of the of the reign? 
And how do you take it off him? Good, good question. In the same way, Billy Robinson never got the strap because he was an ornery cuss of a shooter. So it's like, how the hell do you get it off him? In terms of Hulk, it's how would you do that without completely uh, depreciating his worth as a draw? Yeah, I, I think, well, t- my answer is, I think if they had put the belt on Hulk Hogan in 1983, um, I think Hulk Hogan would have done exactly what he did. He would have left the AWA for the WWF, and I don't think he would have done, a, the, done the honors on the way out. Maybe he would have, but I doubt it. The AWA certainly, I mean, we were discussing this on the Facebook group today. I mean, you know, the AWA was doing great in 1983. There was really no need uh, to change anything, you know. Um, Hogan chasing Bockwinkle. Did the chase go on forever? It seemed to at the same time. Uh, you know, the AWA still drew in 1983, even when Hulk Hogan, support, you know, storyline, walked out because he felt like he got cheated against Bockwinkle. And in reality, he had a, a tour of Japan planned, and that that's why he was really absent. You know, Vern Gagne said something interesting. He said that, you know, he would never have put the belt on Hulk Hogan because it wouldn't have worked. He was too big and it wouldn't have drawn. Now, Vern saying this in 1983, I totally get it. The problem is he said it in 1987 after WrestleMania three that, you know, <laughs> no, this is never going to work. <laughs> it's right. like, you know, and, and part of my brain would think, you know, when Hulk Hogan came to the WWF and won the championship immediately in 1984, I was like, you know, I mean, I wasn't wondering, was this going to work um, at the time? But, you know, I look back and I could see it not working, believe it or not, because who's going to beat this guy? What, who's the heel that's going to beat this guy? Is Greg Valentine really going to beat this guy? Is Dr. T. David Schultz really going to beat this guy? But at the end of the day, you know, the any of those guys would feel like threats against Bob Backlund because they were so much bigger than him. But at the end of the day, it didn't matter. You didn't go to see fans. WWF fans didn't come out to see, you know, Greg Valentine. Oh, is he going to win the championship? They came out to see the star power of Hulk Hogan. And it, uh, it certainly worked. And like I said, I think that had had Vern put the championship on Hulk Hogan instead of Nick Bockwinkle for 83, I think Hulk still would have left for the WWF at the end of 83. No questions asked. Absolutely. Yeah. Money talks. Exactly. You know, Vern. And and Hogan would walk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Vern just wasn't going to do what, what Vince McMahon was going to do. All right. Dan Peterman asks, what was your favorite match from 1982? Lou, do you have a favorite from 82? Oh, I, I wish that I definitively had a a favorite match. I don't think I've seen enough of the product throughout all of the territories to to really form a, an educated opinion on it. I can tell you that of the of the stuff I've seen, yeah, if we're talking work rate, if we're talking impact. You're talking your favorite though. My favorite. Yeah. Uh yeah, yeah. I think it would be something from world class. It could be, uh, you know, the, what was a reunion arena match with Carrie and Flair. I could say the 
the cage match on Christmas night, but the finish was just such a such a cluster. And had it just been a straight uh, fuck finish where David Manning comes to and Flair, you know, just crawls on top of Kerry and one, two, three, I think that would have served the match a lot better than just having sort of a no contest and having Kerry, you know, suffering a concussion. I had said that for for many, many years that, you know, they should have slammed the cage door on his head and Flair pins him and that's it. And then someone mentioned to me maybe 10 years ago, they were like, no, they they needed to stall and keep the match going to get uh, Hayes and Gordy out of there. And I was like, you know what? That totally makes sense, because if they had done the one, two, three and Hayes and Gordy were still at ringside, they were going to have a problem getting those guys to the back for real. Oh, yeah. You put it that way, I could, yeah, legitimately say yes. <laughs> I, I I didn't think of it on my own either. <laughs> so, Ryan, so as for you, uh, what would you say was your favorite match of the year? My favorite match of the year, I mean, I saw Bob Backlund against Bob Orton Jr. at the Boston Garden. I feel like I've talked about this too many times, but it was just <laughs> a, a match on a different plane than anything I had ever seen before in my lifetime. And maybe it wasn't as good as I remember. I don't know. Obviously, it was not recorded, or at least I don't think it was recorded. Um, I'd like to go back and, and see it again if there was any way we could do time travel. Just, you know, to, to <laughs> look at it objectively now that I've seen other matches. But I would say that was my favorite. Uh, Bob Backlund versus Adrian Adonis from uh, both Madison Square Garden, uh, the first match, and the Lumberjack match from Landover were both fantastic. What was the other one? The, the Snooker versus Backlund matches were overrated. Uh, I'm not saying they were terrible. Well, the ones from Boston were pretty bad, but um, <laughs> they weren't particularly good. The Kerry versus Flair matches, uh, the cage match obviously is a favorite of mine because it, it set a territory on fire. It had that, you know, the finish at least where, you know, Terry Gordy slams the door in Kerry's face. I mean, you could just hear the air coming out of that building. It was phenomenal. But like you said, the August 1982 Kerry versus Flair match was otherworldly and a match of the decade candidate. So, I mean, not not number one, but uh, I would say one of the 10 best of the entire decade. So 82 had some, had some really good spots. Oh, and let's not forget Babyface Junkyard Dog against Babyface Ted DiBiase, where Ted DiBiase loads up his glove and then turns on JYD. That That's a favorite of mine, one of the all-time great finishes. You know, come to think of it, that's, that's really got to be up there in terms of not only what comes down the line as a result of that, but also the story to set it up, which was with um, Bob Roop. It was coming out of a, a DiBiase and Bob Roop program. Mm -hmm. And this is the beauty of Mid-South because it treated everything, the whole framework as athletic contests with specific rules and what set up that particular TV match, it was originally supposed to be no DQ for the North American title, Bob Roop defending against Ted DiBiase. And because uh, JYD had 
beaten Roop on a house show and got the title. They kept the, uh, you know, it changed and it was JYD in what was supposed to be a friendly match against DiBiase, but they kept the no DQ steps. And well, Lou, if I, if I may, Ted DiBiase came out and he said, I'll leave town if I can't beat Bob Roop for the North American title. Or I think he said, oh, I'll God, leave town yeah. if I don't win the North American title. And like you said, you know, giant curveball at a house show. It's now JYD against Ted DiBiase. No DQ. And if Ted doesn't win the title, he's gone from Mid-South. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they certainly did put that in to kind of build up sort of the what you could see as a a sort of mo of desperation that's the word was desperate right and then also to have roop as a guest commentator on the match (laughs) and then when dibiase loads up the glove whack gets the pin gets the title Bob Roop can say, see, I told you DiBiase was a snake. And I mean, it was uh, altogether start to finish. It was superbly executed. Yeah. Bob Roop sitting there going, that's what he had planned for me all along. And it, it yeah. like I said, it was a great story because you could understand why he did it at least at first because he had painted himself into a corner but he was confident he could beat bob roop but now we're talking junkyard dog and you're not going to knock junkyard dog out with one punch the way you might with bob roop uh very true lou it is your turn to to select a question from our studio audience oh very good looks like we have a question from jamie hammer it's a what he calls a a purely hypothetical situation here. If superstar Billy Graham came back as the superstar and not, <laughs> this cracks me up, and not G. Gordon Liddy. That was a good one. G. Gordon Liddy in a karate gi. Uh, <laughs> and they did the destroying the belt angle, complete with Backlund crying, why, why, and cutting terrible promos after. Could that have facilitated a double turn? I think it's a fun hypothetical. I think that probably would have required much more heavy lifting for the audience, for the fans to kind of buy into that because you had, you know, the all American boy, Bob Backlund doing that. But, uh, you know, uh, conceivably you could have painted him as a, what do you say? Somebody who's out of touch, somebody who's a, not a spoiled brat. Someone who overreacts a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Somebody where you you could have the fan asking them, why couldn't he just sack up? It's a title belt. They'll make him a new one. And then sort of go from there with Backlund kind of having the, I'm an NCAA champ. That was, you know, that was mean and no good. And I'm going to still be a champion. If there's a way to shade that, that profile he had to be sort of a more warped version of course, I don't, I don't, you don't see Backlund going with that, of course, because uh, his later rationale in 84 in that he had a young child and he didn't want, he didn't want that heat and that blowback uh, from the fans. 
I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, Jamie, I mean, could it have worked? Maybe. I mean, superstar Billy Graham, uh, I'm going to be, he had no choice but to shave his head. I mean, his hair was gone by 1980. I mean, he didn't even have the skullet anymore. Um, Right. But he did come back, you know, when he resurrected the old superstar Billy Graham on WTBS at the end of 1985. You know, could he, would that have worked as a baby face, uh, in the WWF in 1982? Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if Bob Backlund was willing to play ball and turn heel, you know, I might have said to him, Bob, you know, guess what? Greg Valentine has kids. Morocco has kids, you know, but I, you know, yeah, it could have worked, but I mean, I think what they did was they they stuck to the tried and true formula, which is, I think, I thought made a lot more sense. Yeah. And at that point, we're talking, was that right around the time that uh, Vince made the purchase? Vince, uh, Vincent Kennedy McMahon made the purchase from his father? Uh, yeah, it was during, I want to say, June 1982. Right, right. And of course, I think in that in that first year or so, I, I think McMahon Sr. certainly had a lot of a lot of influence in terms of like, you know, how to steer the ship and how to book things. So I don't know if he'd certainly go for something so seemingly off the wall. Yeah. I mean, the old WWF was, it was very straightforward. They kept it really simple and it all worked. Let's talk a little bit about Bob Backlund's interviews. Um, I have been watching <laughs> some pro wrestling USA from 1984 and I, I was actually thinking about having a show that, you know, if I have like a void, okay, when am I going to do this week? Having a show where we talk about nothing but Bob Backlund and his interviews from this time, because these things oh, yeah. had to be seen and or heard to be believed. They were the worst interviews ever. I mean, just beyond boring and dumb. And like I said, we're, and you're not even going to get to see Bob Backlund in this forest green three-piece suit with the giant lapel. <laughs> I mean, that would have been horrible five years later, but, I mean, Bob, you don't need to shop at the thrift store. You're the former world's heavyweight champion. Yeah, anyway, didn't mean to go on a, a tangent on Bob Backlund, but these things were jaw-dropping. I know, though for people who haven't seen those from the WPIX shows, the the interviews led by uh, Jack Reynolds, who you know didn't do Backlund any favors besides that. But yeah, having him in that nineteen seventy six Robin Hood disco suit. <laughs> That's what it was—a Robin Hood disco suit. And the thing was too, it's not like he was saying anything meaningful or something that that would show a little fire, and then. On top of that, he would have pauses that you could fucking drive an 18-wheeler through. <laughs> it's true. So it seemed like, okay, not only is he a soft-spoken wimp, but he might be on something. <laughs> could have been Quaaludes, really. Yeah. Bob, Bob now, now I'm getting tempted to do this show because this was just beyond awful. I mean, he's out there like, you know, kind of squinting into the camera, being uber serious and saying, you know, 
they took the belt from me. They wanted me out of wrestling. <laughs> right. The people's champion. Yeah. And then putting, boy, and then that particular meeting of the minds with Flair Backlund and Martell. Yeah, that didn't exactly create any sparks either. No, Bob Bob was out there. He was like a walking announcement of why the why he was no longer with the WWF in case you forgot. You know, and getting back to Graham destroying the belt, I mean, Bob could have used 17-year-old me as an interview coach because I would have told him, Bob, go out there with the pieces of the belt. Don't be crying. Look into the camera and say, hey, you know, this belt meant a lot to me. And superstar Billy Graham, you held this belt for 10 months. It should have meant a lot to you. They'll get me a new belt, but I'm going to get even for you with you for this. You don't do this to my championship belt. But don't go out there and cry talking about your blind grandmother. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Oh, my God. The blind grandmother. Yeah. Forgot about that. <laughs> you know, at least if you're going to, yeah, if you're going to lose your shit, at least do it like the way he did when Peter Maivia turned on him in that tag match and also laid out Arnold Scoland. And at the end, he's like, why? Why do you do this? And then at the end, they had to bleep it out. He said, I'm going to kill that son of a bitch. You know, at least that had fire. That had me up until like four or five in the morning I, when I saw that on WOR, like right around 12.58 on a Saturday night. I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. All right. Oh, man, we're running out of time. Ashley Smith asked, how has the circus called WWF been, been so accepted by the Eastern United States? Um, Lou, do you have any thoughts on this? We're talking pre 1984 Hulk Hogan, TNT, Gene Okerlund, I think. Uh, yeah. I know. Ashley, my fellow Bay Area resident, uh, what up? Yeah. The fact that how could it easily uh, have been accepted by, yeah, on the East Coast in the Northeast in that stronghold that they had more or less owned the the previous 20 years. I guess Vince McMahon had really, really been good at conditioning the fan base. Exactly. And it was, of course, everybody will, you know, will talk about the, you know, the appealing to the various ethnic groups who were, had strong, a strong presence in the attendance. So then you had, of course, Bruno, and then later... Pedro Morales, but it's not just that. I guess it's you got to think about. Yeah, how did they? How did they condition the fans to do that? I think Bruno himself. He was certainly a singular force in helping achieve that. I'd say, and I guess he would call it a circus because it was a strong man. Uh, with uh, various freaks and geeks coming in and hitting all three rings. But I don't know. As you're somebody who the WWF was your gateway drug to pro wrestling fandom, what do you think contributed to their popularity? 
Well, I think, you know, as far as the popularity goes, it's pro wrestling. It's, you know, good versus evil. It's Bruno Sammartino upholding all that is good in the world. He's a decent man. He's soft-spoken. And then you get these loud, brash, bad guy wrestlers who are bigger than Bruno, and they've got this these horrible managers with them. And But the biggest reason... Ashley, you know, why was it accepted? The biggest reason, for the most part, it was all we knew. And, you know, that's until I started getting magazines, I didn't realize that there was other wrestling besides this wrestling that was on Channel 56. I thought that was it. I didn't realize that there was a Florida, a Georgia, a Los Angeles promotion, etc., so that's my my first way of looking at it. And we when when I had Jason a couple of weeks back and we talked about the Madison Square Garden show, you know, I mean, they they did the little comedy spots that appealed to the audience. And you know, if you didn't like that stuff, you just didn't become a wrestling fan, but uh, certainly enough people did. And another way of looking at it, I know that Mid-South Florida, Georgia were more realistic in terms of, you know, just being pro wrestling promotions than the WWF. I know the WWF was very slow paced and they ran a lot of crazy gimmicks like the Moondogs and the Samoans. But look at some of the other promotions from around this time. I mean, summer of 1982, George the Animal Steel is in Georgia as Tommy Rich's surprise tag team partner. Uh, in 1981, the Sheik being now, you know, not, not only does he have an outrageous gimmick, but now he's a really old man and he's wrestling in Florida. Mid-South had Kamala the Ugandan headhunter either late 82 or early 83. I forget exactly when he debuted, but it's right around this time frame. So every promotion had its, you know, had it its silly spots. Florida had that guy named Big Daddy. We talked about Bruce Walkup, the welder who decided to get into <laughs> yes. wrestling. I mean, you know, every promotion has its little hiccups, and I get it. The WWF, even before, you know, Hogan, Hogan, Okerlund, TNT was a little more hokey than the rest of them. But it's not like any wrestling promotion, you know, outside. Even the Japan ones had their their hiccups with Tiger Jeet Singh and whoever else. So, you know, I, I get it. The WWF was a little more silly, but it's not like it was you know, unrecognizable from the rest of the wrestling world. Right. Yep, I I would agree with that. I think, and mm-hmm. no, I was I was gonna say I think we have time for like two more, but please go ahead if you have more to add. Okay, I'll do this one from uh, popular recurring guest Jamie Ward. A Southwest Championship Wrestling debuted on USA Network in late '82. What was your reaction when you saw a third promotion on national cable? Well, from going back and watching it. My reaction probably initially was, couldn't they get decent lighting? Uh, yeah, and, and decent audio. Yeah, that too. Couldn't you just have somebody go in and uh, dub the Spanish commentary after the show? As far as the the action itself, it was certainly certainly a bit different. What you saw, I think, certainly differed a lot from Georgia in that WTBS was a stickler about no blood 
whereas you couldn't get through a week of Southwest without somebody getting juice in the ring. And then on top of that, you, you know, it seemed a lot more sort of gritty in terms of the product. It was an interesting counterpoint to the WWF's product. And also Georgia, to an extent, and of course, later on in 83, Georgia would send talent to Southwest. So that, that certainly muddied the waters in terms of that. That was an interesting couple of weeks, and it's funny. It only lasted <laughs> a couple of weeks that you know, all of a sudden I'm seeing uh, Scott Casey and Tully Blanchard in Georgia, and then I'm seeing Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer in San Antonio, and, you know, I didn't know what was going on. I'm like, you know, they're talking about this merger and all this, and you know, that was gone in the blink of an eye. But anyway, I mean, my reaction to Southwest was, hey, you know, especially back in 82 when, you know, there just wasn't a lot of wrestling on TV. Hey, great, another hour of wrestling. But even my untrained eye, uh, when I first discovered this, like towards the very end of 1982, I, you know, noticed that it was on, uh, there was wrestling on USA Network by going through the channels. I mean, it, it definitely, I don't mean this is in a disparaging manner. It had a a definitely a, a minor league feel to it. I mean, you know, you look at look at the building where they were recording mm-hmm. from, and even I couldn't help but notice that, like, okay, you couldn't, you guys can't get a real arena. Like, what is this? Even even a, a television studio would have been better than what they had. It just looked looked like a dilapidated barn. And Lou, as you stated, I mean. You've got Steve Stacks doing commentary, commentary, and then in the background, you kind of hear the Spanish feed like the entire yeah. time. And it's like, you're on national cable. What are we doing here? You know, you can't, right. like you said, you gotta, you gotta clean that up. And it, it came across noticeably again t- to me at the time as just kind of minor league. And then we get to the wrestlers. Tully Blanchard went on to have a phenomenal decade, but in 1982, 1983, I looked at him as a guy who, if he came to the WWF, like he wasn't even getting a title shot against Bob Backlund. He was going to be uh, a Tor Kamada, Iron Mike Sharp level talent. I was wrong, but that's how I saw it. Bob Sweetang, Scott Casey, these are all guys who would have been not only middle of the card in the WWF, but the way I saw it in Florida, Georgia, Mid-South, etc. You know, it was clearly a, a step back from, you know, what I was used to seeing. You had Ricky Morton and uh, a very uh, noticeably aged Ken Lucas. As you know, the tag team champions, Ricky Morton, again, went on to have a great decade, but he was just getting started and he looked like kind of a minor league guy to me. Gino Hernandez, I bought as a big deal and someone who would have been a star anywhere. But then again, when he was in Georgia, just a year later, he was the junior heavyweight champion. So they weren't taking him too seriously on the big stage either. So. You know, like I said, at the time, it felt like, you know, I was watching the Pawtucket Red Sox instead of the Boston Red Sox. It has its own charm, but at the same time, at the end of the day, it's minor leagues. Right. Though, it's, yeah, you would see the occasional flash of big league talent when Nick Bockwinkle would come in. That's true. And Bruiser Brody on occasion. But, yeah, the the place where I believe they did the tapings was called the junction yep in san antonio 
in San Antonio. Unfortunately, I was, well, I was in San Antonio last week. That was not unfortunate. What was unfortunate was that I didn't get to visit the junction, which is still around. No way! Yeah, but now it has a much different function. It's an antique store. So, if I make it back to San Antonio, I'd just like to check out the bones of the place and to see if they have any Southwest Championship Wrestling-related curios strewn about. Okay, so we have I I did I figured that place just turned into dust by itself by by now. It looks so dilapidated forty years ago. Would have gone the way of the sportatorium in Dallas. But yeah, it's still there. So we have a wrestling promotion on national television at a place that will be converted into an antique store. My mind's kind of crumbling right now. <laughs> I mean, there's some of it on YouTube. If you haven't seen Southwest Championship Wrestling before, I mean, you know, clearly they, and I, again, I could, I could have told you when I was 17, okay, we need more lighting. We need better production. And it wasn't like I, I cared that much about production, but every, I, I had seen the WWF, obviously. I had seen Florida. I'd seen Georgia. I'd seen Mid-South. I'd seen Knoxville. I had yet to see World Class. But, I mean, Southwest was a step below everything as far as, like, production and, and what they put out there. And no one else had, like, this distracting Spanish commentary going on in the background. I mean, that was embarrassing. Final question, Lou, and we'll wrap this up. In your opinion, Matt Matsuo asks, who was the wrestling MVP of 1982? Ooh, well, let's see. You have many to choose from. Uh, You could certainly say uh, Flair as a traveling champion who made his mark, you know, you could see on TV in Dallas, in Florida, just about anywhere he went. You could also have Ted DiBiase, who really had the unexpected heel turn and just really refashioned his career in a big way that he was able to kind of ride that momentum for the following three years or so as a cunning heel. And then you've also got, of course, the other champions, Nick Bockwinkle, who was his own great self, and Bob Backlund, who was near the end, but still getting it done. Hmm. As far as MVP, MVP has the connotation of somebody who, like, wire to wire, January 1st to December 31st, really was just a a solid wrestler. Because, you know, I'm I'm thinking about Dynamite Kid and Tiger Mask, who made a, a strong impact at MSG. But, you know, that was just kind of a almost a singular moment in time. If we're talking day in and day out... I'm going to say, I'm going to say Ted DiBiase. All right, I can see that. MVP, when it comes to sports, the term MVP gets tortured, in my opinion. It's been tortured for 50 years. Let's say the baseball MVP. People tell me, oh, yeah, you know, this player might have 10 more home runs, 20 more hits, and be a better defender, but his team finished in the middle of the pack, and that's not valuable. Wrong. The be- the most valuable player is always the best player, um, but in wrestling it's a little bit different because you do take the value of it into consideration, like, you know, 
who is a draw. Um, in my opinion, honorable mentions go to Nick Bockwinkle, who was the top guy in the AWA, and that was doing great business. Bob Backlund, who was the top guy in the WWF, and they were doing great business. But Ric Flair came in and, and tackled a role. In my opinion, Harley Race, by the time Ric Flair won the title September 17th, 1981, had become stale as NWA champion. Then the promotion needed something else, and they got everything they wanted in Ric Flair and more. Rick in his book talked about how he felt his first run was not a successful one. I, I mean, I disagree with him. I, you know, whenever I see an NWA show and with an attendance figure, you know, for the most part, they're impressive. And I think he gave the NWA just the, the, the fresh style that it needed. The MVP of 1982, in my opinion, is Ric Flair. Yeah. I certainly would not dispute that, especially considering Flair as being the the traveling champion. He was also a big component in many of these angles going on in the various territories. Yes. Be it with uh, the Von Erichs and the Freebirds, or if you look at Southeastern, I want to say it was 82, Bob Armstrong, as a special referee, turned heel on Ron Fuller when uh, Ron Fuller had a title match against Flair. You got to have multiple ingredients to have these really good angles and good spots to drive business. And I think the common denominator there would be Ric Flair. I am in complete agreement. You're right. A lot of the territories built around, you know, the, hey, our local babyface is going to be uh, going against the NWA world champion, and he has a chance. And Ric Flair played that traveling uh, champion role very well, in my opinion, even the first time. I mean, I don't like to disagree with Rick. He's my favorite wrestler of all time. But I think in his book, he did not give himself enough credit for that initial run. And with that, I want to thank everyone for listening. We'll be back with another edition of the Stick to Wrestling podcast next week. Lou, thank you for, for stepping up and, and being the guest and, and not only not only the, the producer this week. Well, th- thank you very much. And to the audience, I apologize. Is 1982, I don't have a great depth of knowledge on, but your questions were great. And I hope that I at least uh, was able to answer them to your satisfaction. John McAdam, he always does. So <laughs> I'm not worried about Luke him. Luke Kippel been doing his Ric Flair thing and not giving himself enough credit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks, everyone, for listening. Lou, thank you for all the great work you do producing this podcast. Believe me, it comes out sounding a lot better than when we do it. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols. And this concludes our podcast day.